Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The Partygate row continued to envelop Boris Johnson's government this week as the Prime Minister faced mounting anger over his defence of lockdown-breaking parties. Categorically, that nobody told me and nobody, nobody said that uh, this was something that was against the rules, that was a breach of the, of the COVID rules, that we were doing something that wasn't a, a work event because, uh, frankly, I don't think... Uh, I can't imagine why on earth it would have gone ahead. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times with me, Sebastian Payne. There's only been one story in the Westminster Village this week, Partygate, as you heard Boris Johnson apologising for at the top. We'll be devoting this episode to the latest twists and turns in the drama that could still end the Prime Minister's career. So is Johnson on the cusp of a no-confidence vote? Could he win it? What is the latest on Sue Gray's investigation into the parties? And how badly was the Prime Minister rocked by the defection of a Red War Tory MP to Labour? We'll be unpacking all the news and drama with our top panel, political editor George Parker, chief political commentator Robert Shrimsley, and the FT's contributing editor and columnist Camilla Cavendish. Thank you all for joining. Well, as we record this on Friday morning, Boris Johnson is still Prime Minister and he has yet to face a vote of no confidence in his premiership. But it has still been one of the most politically difficult weeks of his career, with Conservative MPs increasingly losing faith in his position and everyone on tenterhooks for that official investigation into the number 10 parties. The mood among many Tory MPs was summed up by David Davis, the former cabinet minister who stood up in the House of Commons and told his colleagues on Wednesday that Johnson should resign by invoking a notable historical comparison. But I expect my leaders to shoulder the responsibility for the actions they take. Yesterday, he did the opposite of that. So I'll remind him of a quotation altogether too familiar to him of Leo Amory, Neville Chamberlain, you have sat there too long for all the good you have done. In the name of God, go. Well, George Parker, what a week of drama. Let's begin on Monday with another bombshell from Dominic Cummings, Boris Johnson's former chief aide. He published a blog where he said that he would say under oath that Johnson knew in advance of that crucial party on May the 20th, 2020, and the fact it was a party, which the Prime Minister denies on both accounts. If that turns out to be true, then that means the Prime Minister is in an awful lot of trouble because it would suggest he has lied not only to his colleagues and to MPs, but also to Parliament. Yeah, it's been a wild ride, hasn't it, this week? And um, as you say, over the last weekend, it appeared that the mood has settled down slightly, rather against expectations, because MPs have spent the the weekends in the constituency being bombarded with complaints and emails about Boris Johnson's behaviour. But the mood seems to have subsided a bit. But then on Monday, as you say, Dominic Cummings produced this latest blast against Boris Johnson. And this is really the sort of smoking piece of information at the heart of this whole scandal now, isn't it? Was Boris Johnson told in advance of that party on May the 20th 
uh, it was a party and it broke lockdown rules, which is Dominic Cummings' claim. He said he was prepared to do that on oath. And that moment then triggered more concern. And we'll come on to this in a second, because the next day the Prime Minister emerged from self-isolation because of a close relative of having COVID, gave a TV interview, which was an abject apology, which when you looked at him, and many Tory MPs said this at the time, he looked like a broken man. And that sent all sorts of jitters through the party. Because this really comes to a he said, she said, Downing Street insists, and Boris Johnson has insisted he had no advanced knowledge of this party, which he claims is a work event, which, by the way, there is no official definition of that within the COVID rules. Robert Shrimsley, let's look at that interview on Tuesday. So as George said, the Prime Minister had been hiding from the public limelight, but he popped up and gave a 60-minute chat in a hospital. And it was pretty abysmal. And it really set MP off. Why was it so damaging? Well, I think it had two fundamental problems to it. The first was, as you and George both said, the rather hangdog tone, which looked a bit defeatist. And you can see where this came from, because the week before, when he first had to apologise to the Commons, he clearly decided, I think rightly, that a contrite tone was the right one to strike, so that people would accept that this was a genuine apology. And he carried it on in this interview, but it seemed far worse. So the tone looked like a man who was down, and it was coming on a day when people were beginning to slide away from The Secondly, there was this phrase, nobody told me. Nobody told me that the rules I had driven through Parliament against some opposition were in some way being broken by having a large drinks party in my own back garden. And I think everyone just looks at this, thought, oh, come on. I mean, at what point do you as a, as, an, as a leader take responsibility for your own actions? And I think it just combined to say to people, look, this man is scrambling around, he's down, he hasn't got a good argument. And I think that's one of the reasons why you saw him come out swinging in question time the next day. And I'm sure, sure we're going to come to, back to that. But that actually the people close to him said, listen, you've actually got to look like you're fighting for this job and there's a reason to stink with you. But that, that hangdog tone on Tuesday was really damaging. Well, Camilla Cavendish, if we sum up those two events, this really comes down to a question of credibility here because on Monday, Dominic Cummings said very clearly and the Prime Minister was not telling the truth. And it's also been reported since that Sue Gray, who is investigating this hover, has found a crucial email that went to Johnson's private office saying, you should not do this party. It was against COVID rules. So when you contrast that with what the Prime Minister said on that interview clip, people are just saying, well, hang on a minute. Is he telling the truth? Do you think he is? I think the problem for Sue Gray is going to be proving whether the Prime Minister ever saw that email. I think it'll be perfectly possible for Boris Johnson to continue to maintain that in his own mind, this was a work event and Sue Gray can't actually get into his brain to disprove that. But yes, I mean, I think most people think, I mean, either he really wasn't in charge, in which case, what on earth is he doing in Number 10 Downing Street? Or he knew perfectly well what was going on. And I think back to Robert's point, you know, the apologies, the various apologies he's tried to make have just not seemed genuine. And I think at the outset, what really happened was that he didn't take this that seriously. People around him didn't take it seriously enough because I suppose they've been living in a sort of parallel universe, which we're all now beginning to unravel. And that means I just don't think he's ever going to be able to convince anybody 
that he is genuinely shocked by what the rest of the country is shocked by. And just to pick a light on a past life of yours, Camilla, because you worked in Downing Street into David Cameron's government, a lot of people are quite confused by this thing. So obviously it is a building, it's an office building, it's a state building. It's also a home where Boris Johnson and his wife and family live above the shop in number 11 Downing Street. Is it in any way conceivable that event and all these other events could have taken place without the Prime Minister knowing? Because people will say, well, hang on a minute, it was in your garden. It was in your basement. Did you not hear it? Did you not see it? Did you not know people were actively organising this series of parties? It's impossible that if the Prime Minister was in the building he wouldn't have been aware of it. The garden leads off the cabinet room. It's a very large garden and it's a very nice garden. And number 10 is a small cramped house with no air conditioning. And on that day, I think it was the hottest day of the year, it would have been absolutely sweltering. And I'm not at all surprised if people would want to go in the garden and get a bit of a break. But this looks like it was much more carefully constructed than that. And I think, you know, the sight of people bringing in trestle tables the sound of people clinking glasses and laughing. I mean, you just, we wouldn't, you could not ignore that. Now, George, let's come to the next development, which was Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday. And this was the first time Boris Johnson was going to really get out there and have to face these accusations. But 15 minutes before Prime Minister's questions, we broke the news at the FT. Uh, Christine Wakeford, who was one of the newly elected Conservative MPs in the Red Wall, defected to Labour. And this is the first time in 15 years an MP has crossed the floor, and he did actually cross the floor of the House of Commons. And later on, he explained why he decided to switch parties. This has been many months uh, in the build-up, and whether it goes back to uh, the issues over free school meals, of Dominic Cummings, over universal credit, the cost of living crisis, you know, the only Patterson affair, or, or now Partygate. There's been a lot of you know, build-up to this and a lot of soul-searching that's taken many sleepless nights. And the irony is, George, that you would think this would be even more damaging. This would even more hit Boris Johnson's credibility. But in fact, it had the opposite effect on the Tory party. Yeah, on the face of it, it's the worst thing you could possibly imagine. Uh, literally, I think the Prime Minister was actually standing behind the Speaker's chair. I was looking down into the chamber there when Christian Wakeford physically crossed the floor and sat on the Labour benches. Hard to think of a worse start to Prime Minister's questions when the Prime Minister's fighting for his life. But it had the effect of apparently galvanising the Prime Minister, but more importantly galvanising the Tory benches behind him because they quickly discovered that they may not like Boris Johnson that much, but they really hate treacherous turncoats. And, and so they got in behind Boris Johnson. And by the time, at the end of Prime Minister's question time, when David Davis stood up, the wind was already in Boris Johnson's sails. And we often exaggerate the importance of Prime Minister's question time in political life and the drama, but you actually felt in that half an hour there was a definite shift in the political mood and the party saw Boris Johnson fighting for his life and actually sticking it to Christian Wakeford and they got him behind him. Now, that, that gave him a sugar rush for, for that time and, of course, things could change again in the next few days. But at that particular moment, he escaped from a moment of maximum danger. Because this whole thing, Robert, it goes in ebbs and flows where the, the pressure builds up, we think something mass is going to happen, then it subsides again. And I think you commented on Wednesday morning that if Boris had a good PMQs, it would help him. If he had a bad one, he'd be in real trouble there. And it was a very noisy experience. And if you listen to what Sir Keir Starmer had to say about the PM's changing excuses of parties, it gives you a sense of the atmosphere in the chamber. Because the Prime Minister, to ask us to accept that... As it, 
as he waded through the empty bottles and platters of sandwiches, he didn't realise it was a party. Does the Prime Minister realise how ridiculous that sounds? And it felt as if he did have some fight in him again on Wednesday, Robert. Do you think that was all the defection or was there something else going on? I think it was a combination of the defection and the recognition that he needed to have a bit of fight in him. And when you really strip this down to the absolute basics, there is really only one argument that Boris Johnson has to deploy to save his own skin. And it's not, I didn't know and nobody told me and all of these things. It's, yes, we screwed up. This is not something to throw a prime minister overboard for. And you see some of his outriders beginning to make this argument, saying, yes, look, it's, it's terrible. We completely get why people are furious. But let's not forget all the positives of Boris Johnson from their point of view. Let's not forget what he can do and what he can still do. There's a very long time to the next election. Memories will fade. People may decide they don't want Labour and so on and so on. That's the only plausible line that Boris Johnson can use. And for that to work, he has to look like our prime minister who's still got the fight in him, who the Boris Johnson they remember from elections, who could still be a feisty campaigner, who people will still like. Personally, I don't know that it's good enough in terms of winning round the electorate again, but it is the only viable one. And you, you make this argument and you say, let's buy some time to see if he can do it. And the essentials of that argument is he has to look like a prime minister who's still in command. So if prime minister's questions had gone very badly for him, I think that would have been the end of it because the only audience he's playing to at the moment are his own MPs, and they would have thought, no, he's done. So he's come back with a bit of fight. We expect to see a bit more of it. And we now understand the parameters of this decision for Conservative MPs, because we don't really think that Sue Gray is likely to deliver an absolute coup de grace. So the the fundamental facts are already in front of Tories, and they just have to decide if they buy that argument or not. Well, Downing Street, Camilla, have tried to get a rearguard action going to try and save the Prime Minister with two campaigns. There's Operation Save Big Dog and Operation Red Meat, as they've been reported in various papers. And Operation Red Meat was doing a whole bunch of policies to try and get Conservative MPs back on side. So we've had some nice BBC bashing this week, which you saw the licence fee frozen for two years, which was rather abruptly done and has created a lot of unhappiness within the Cabinet, as well as George has reported this week, the Chancellor Rishi Sunak and others felt that this decision-making might not have quite gone exactly as it should have. There's also been reports they're going to bring the military in to try and solve the small boat issue in the English Channel. And this is all red meat to the Conservative benches. Does that kind of stuff wash? Well, it doesn't when it backfires. So obviously we had the the, the allied stories on the, on the small boats was that um, we were going to send asylum seekers to Rwanda or Ghana and there was that unbelievably dignified and incredibly humiliating letter from the Ghanaian embassy saying, uh, this has not been discussed and we are absolutely not going to take your asylum seat. Surprise, surprise. Um, I mean, he's doing that because the small boats keep coming up again and again in his polling as a problem which he has not solved. They've got worse under his leadership. The BBC, I don't think it does wash because I think these look like knee-jerk reactions. There's little substance to them. They haven't been properly thought through. And the BBC is also a national treasure. I mean, whatever some people may feel about its ideological position, I mean, the idea that you're suddenly going to get rid of some of the greatest programmes that people have been used to watching, that's not going to happen. That's just not realistic. So, yeah, I think there's a sense of panic about this, which I actually feel is the opposite of what he ought to have been projecting. And of course, what better to do in a panic, George, than to make some massive changes to coronavirus regulations? So again, on Wednesday, Sajid Javid, the health secretary, came out and announced that those Plan B measures in England would be scrapped. I've always said 
that we would open up the country as soon as the data supports it. The government is ending the guidance on working from home. From the start of next Thursday, mandatory certification based on vaccines and tests will end. Well, George, we know that Conservative MPs aren't a fan of the current COVID regulations, no matter how light touch they are. They don't like working from home. They don't like vaccine passports. And they don't like face masks, even though Sajid Javid said that they were following the data and health guidance um, to make this call. It obviously came at a very useful political moment. Yes. And uh, I mean, look at the counterfactual there. If Omicron had not gone the way that the Prime Minister hoped and was still raging through the country and overwhelming hospitals, and the Prime Minister had had to come back to the House of Commons to renew those restrictions on January the 26th. That would have been a total political disaster in the in the context of everything else that's going on. And to be fair to the Prime Minister, the government got it right. You could argue that Boris Johnson was bullied into uh, keeping the country open over Christmas and New Year by the right of his party and people in his cabinet. But nevertheless, in the end, the right judgment was taken. And the booster campaign is a national triumph. And some of the credit for that has to go to Boris Johnson and the, and the government. So I think, you know, that making that announcement that the COVID restrictions were coming to an end, that Britain's going to be one of the first countries to move from the pandemic to the endemic state of the virus, I think is a, a strong card for Boris Johnson to play. It's removed some of the toxicity from the from the political atmosphere, but it didn't last very long because, to be honest, that announcement, which would have been huge a few months ago, the ending of COVID restrictions, was relegated to second place by ongoing discussion about the parties. Well, after the COVID announcement and that quite boisterous PMQs, Robert, the whole Partygate thing went into a bit of an ebb. But then we got new accusations about the conduct of the government that William Wagg, who is an influential select committee chair, came out and said that Whips and Downing Street had not maybe been acting entirely in a due and proper way. In recent days, a number of members of parliament have faced pressures and intimidation from members of the government because of their declared or assumed desire for a vote of confidence in the party leadership of the Prime Minister. Mr Rag Robert went on to say that Whips had essentially been blackmailing MPs and saying that funding would be withdrawn from their constituencies, they might get stitched up in the upcoming boundary review of seats. Isn't this just the normal sort of thing Whips do, or is there something particularly bad about what Mr Rag is kind of leaning at? The thing is, Seb, the answer to both of those questions is yes. Yes, it's the normal thing Whips do, and yes, it's particularly bad. You know, People who work in and around politics and in and around Westminster get used to a lot of things that if you take a step back and look at them are actually appalling. So absolutely, whips have been bullying MPs since time immemorial. They bully them under every type of government, under every prime minister. That's practically what they're there for. And they often revel in this reputation as being bullying and unpleasant. Let's not forget, you know, House of Cards is all about a whip who spends his time bullying and blackmailing his opponents. It's, it's, they revel in this reputation. But then again, when you take a step back, it is actually outrageous. I don't know the specifics of this particular case. Very few people will. But the notion that Whips said to vulnerable MPs, people who might be wavering, well, that's the end of the bypass for your constituency. There's no more money for schools or whatever it is. I think anybody who's ever worked around Westminster knows this stuff happens. So you have to just again take a step back and say, are we prepared to put up with these things anymore? It is the rough and tumble of politics, but it shouldn't be. Camilla, were you outraged by this at all? Well, I think many people out there will be surprised by the kind of operations that are routine among whips. I mean, it's perfectly normal for them to place nasty stories in the press, uh, to put pressure about on people. And, you know, maybe we should all be more shocked than we are. 
by that. But I do think that William Wragg's allegation takes us into kind of new territory, really, because, you know, there's always been, I suppose, a, a, an element of pork barrel politics in America, but we're not used in this country to hearing about pork barrel and the removal of pork barrel. His allegation is that whips were threatening to actually remove taxpayer funding, which had already been agreed. I mean, that really is, I think, a different level. And I think that's a kind of mafioso element to this, which, which is serious. Now, let's look, George, at Sue Gray's inquiry, who I think has dominated this week, but obviously in the shadows because Miss Gray is a senior Whitehall official and she's got a team of half a dozen investigators trying to get to the bottom of this party gate row. Where have we got to on when she's going to be reporting? And what do you think fundamentally she's going to say? But in terms of the timing, we, we understand that Sue Gray and those officials you mentioned will be working through the weekend. I think they've realised this has gone on long enough and you've got to draw a line under this. So we're expecting her report to come out either on Monday or Tuesday next week. So it's going to be a really crucial 72 hours for the Prime Minister from the beginning of next week through to Prime Minister's question time without any question at all. What do we expect her to do? Well, look, she's looking at the whole culture and the blame for this, I think, will be spread fairly widely across the civil service, across Tory advisers, and, of course, by implication to the Prime Minister himself, because he's in charge of the civil service and the advisers and the venue where a lot of these parties were taking place. Now, how she apportions blame is going to be interesting because essentially the report is supposed to be establishing facts rather than saying, right, you're out. And, you know, as Robert was saying, we don't expect her to deliver a coup de grace, but she will be looking at the two very conflicting accounts of that party on May the 20th, 2020, which I think will be the, where the, most of the focus will be. And the question is, and you raised this point, Seb, very diligent. You went back through one of Sue Gray's previous reports into an affair involving Damien Green, where she talked about the plausibility of the accounts she was hearing. Now, if she comes out and says that she's interviewed Dominic Cummings, and we know she is interviewing him, probably possibly the last witness she interviews, if she says that she found his evidence plausible, and by implication, therefore, the Prime Minister's account implausible, then I think that is quite a serious moment for Boris Johnson. And you just pick up a bit of a sense around the Prime Minister's camp that whilst they've been clinging to sort of this life raft of the Grey Report for the last week, that maybe actually it might not turn out to be such a sort of reliable getaway vehicle as they'd hoped, and that there is a sort of bit of nervousness around the place, I think. Definitely. And Robert, the issue is that when Sue Gray's done her past investigations into Liam Fox, the former Defence Secretary, or as George mentioned, Damien Green, the former Deputy Prime Minister, she produced a report of the facts that sort of gave hints about where she saw the truth lie. And it went to the Prime Minister's desk at the time in the case of David Cameron and Theresa May. And in both those instances, those ministers were forced to resign from the government. This report goes to no one. It's going to be published and put into the public domain, or at least its findings will. All of her inquiries will not be published, we understand. And it's really to the court of public and parliamentary opinion there. And it's quite a remarkable thing that Downing Street have created this inquiry with no guardrails and no basis at all to shape where it goes. The only thing that's going to shape what Sue Gray can do is whether she feels it will be right and proper for a civil servant to do something that could lead to the fall of a democratically elected prime minister. Yeah, you made the point in a way about the previous reports she's done. The point is, when the previous prime ministers asked for those reports, they did so knowing that a bad report would force them to ask for the resignation of their cabinet minister. There is no higher authority that this report goes to because it's about the prime minister. So the only authority there is are the rows of Conservative MPs when they look at this, when they sniff the air and go, no, this one's not good enough. It's, this patient's not going to heal. And 
That, I mean, in a sense, you could argue that's actually a better way because in the end, it's democratically elected politicians who are going to have to decide this and be accountable for it. But that's what I was getting at in, in, in a way earlier. There is no mechanism here. The, the government will spin this report, which they commissioned as part of their defence strategy. Remember that. They will spin it in the best possible way they can. There will be you know, bloodletting in Downing Street itself as senior officials are pushed out as part of the I've learned my lesson narrative. And Conservative MPs are going to have to look at this and say, do we think this man can claw it back or is it over? And that's really all there is to this. It's going to be the sniff and smell test for Conservative MPs. That's the mechanism and that's the facts. And what's your sense, Camilla, on that sniff and smell test, as Robert put it, that when they see the, the four-page precy or whatever it is that Sue Gray publishes, do you think MPs will say, OK, we're going to give them the benefit of the doubt, you know, there's a way through this? Or do you think the mood is more like to say, well, actually, this confirms my worst fear. David Davis was right. He's not taking responsibility and he needs to go. And then they chuck in those letters of no confidence. I think every single MP already knows what they think. The Sue Gray report is artificial in that sense. I mean, she's very, very good and admirable and she will do an excellent job. But the truth is, everyone already knows what their view is of this prime minister. The calculation they're going to make is, if they call a vote of confidence, will he lose it or will he limp on? And that's one of the reasons they're actually looking in the 1922 committee at potentially changing the rules around voter confidence, because at the moment, you can only have one every year. So I think their worst fear is that we end up with a wounded prime minister with no authority sitting there for a year, which is exactly what Sir Keir Starmer would like to face. But the actual elements of the Sue Gray report, I think, are probably less important than that calculation. And George, finally, what's your sort of feeling on is Boris Johnson going to face a no confidence vote next week? Because the story of this week has been the letters are going in, we're edging towards the crucial 54 you have to hit to have that no confidence vote. I think our feeling is that the letter number of less is probably about 25 to 30. So it's definitely risen this week. And some people say it's gone up, but it's gone down, it's gone up again. But it's still nowhere near that crucial 54. Well, I think it's possible they get to the 54 letters this week, but I don't think it's by any means inevitable. I think there was a, there was a problem that the rebels overplayed their hands last week and that everyone, including MPs and journalists, will be more sceptical the next time we're told that they're about to go over the 54 threshold. That's the first thing. The second thing that Tory MPs always had in their mind that the, the, the rendezvous for the Prime Minister with his parliamentary party would be after the May the 5th local elections. And I still think for a lot of them, that is the moment. There's, a, there's some sort of real politic in that. You have the Prime Minister takes the hit on the cost of living crisis in April and then goes through, faces the machine gun fire of the electorate on May the 5th in those local elections. And then you act against the Prime Minister. There's another reason for doing that. It's because it makes it look like you're acting on behalf of the whole party and the councillors and council leaders who've lost their seats. You're not doing it in terms of your own preserving your own seat, your own self-interest. So I think they'll be taking this out all those things and inertia, as we all know, is a very powerful force in politics. So I think it's possible that after Sue Gray, there's a move. But if I was putting money on it, I think he can still see it through to May. And Robert, do you think Boris Johnson is fundamentally wounded here? Like John Curtis, the poster, has said that he's now lost so much popularity and his standing has taken such a knocking, he will never gain it back. And of course, it's very hard in politics to regain capital once you lose it as prime minister. There's a few rare examples if you think of Margaret Thatcher and the Falkland Wars, for example. But normally leaders enter with, at the peak of their powers and then it drains slowly and gradually. Do you think that's true for Johnson or Again, his sort of exceptionism and his Teflon attitude that we've talked about so many times before means that if he gets through this, he could in fact emerge pretty stronger. 
No, I don't think he can emerge stronger. I think he is very, very, very badly damaged, quite probably terminally in the eyes of the public, because this goes to the issue of his character. The character flaws, they were prepared to disregard at the last election for um, wider political wishes, uh, but which they won't disregard this time. I don't think they will forget this. The only thing you have to factor into this is that the decisions that people make in elections are not made in a vacuum. It's very easy in an opinion poll to say, uh, I've dumped Johnson, I've gone to Starmer, because there's no consequence to that. But when it actually comes to an election, you're making a decision that this man should no longer be prime minister and this man should. So there is that aspect to it, and maybe Partygate will seem a long way away. But my own feeling is he is too damaged for the Tories to want him to fight the next election. Just picking up on George's point, by the way, there was a very interesting piece by David Gork, the former cabinet minister, effectively forced out of the party, by Johnson, who said that the optimum time to strike is after Gray, but before May, because if he can get past the, the immediate furore and the immediate crisis and stretch it out to May, sacrificing hundreds of Tory councillors in the, in the meantime, by the way, the momentum, the heat may well have gone out of it. The moment to strike may, may be lost. So he said if he was going after Johnson, he would wait for the Gray report and then seek to get the challenge in within a week or two of that. And finally, Camilla, if we do get to that confidence vote, let's say Boris Johnson does not emerge or he is forced to stand down. And interestingly, the Chancellor Rishi Sunak and Deputy Prime Minister Dominic Raab have made it clear in interviews this week that if the Prime Minister has lied to Parliament, then he would have to resign. So it might not even get to a confidence vote depending on that inquiry. But if it does get to a leadership contest, what would that look like, do you think? And who would you be watching? Because there is some stuff going on behind the scenes. Soundings are being taken with MPs and donors. But apart from Jeremy Hunt, who essentially said this week he is going to run for the leadership, everything is still behind the scenes. Well, the other obvious candidates are Rishi Sunak himself and Liz Truss. I mean, there's no doubt about either of those. I think there will probably be a lot of others who will throw their hat in the ring if it comes to it, because that's what happened last time. Um, But again, that's one of the fears of the party is, you know, they really need to try and unify around a candidate. And this is the great fear of the split. You know, can anyone else hold Johnson's electoral coalition together? If so, which which of those candidates is going to be best? Well, George, Robert and Camilla, thank you for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. We're back next week, no doubt, to talk about the next instalment of the Partygate scandal and hopefully nearing some kind of conclusion. But if you like this podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels to receive episodes as soon as they're released on Saturday mornings. And before that, you could also leave us a nice review or positive rating. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Yang Sigsworth. Until next time, thanks for listening. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.